please open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15 so that I can lead you into James chapter 2 and verse 14 with some quick understanding from the book of Genesis. I want you to know for the rest of your lives when Abraham was justified. There's numerous faces to Abraham's justification. And we want to make sure we nail them down tightly. Genesis chapter 15. Is this the first chapter about Abraham? No, it's the fourth. Because the 14th, the 13th, the 12th, and the last part of the 11th is about Abraham. I'm going to read to you the first six verses. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We had this was just a couple of weeks ago. This is God tempting Abraham by telling him to take his son Isaac, his only son by Sarah, to take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 10 we read, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, We thank Thee for the glorious doctrine of justification. Let us never ascribe to men what belongs to Thee. Let us always rightly divide Scripture and see Your wisdom in the use of passages like this so that we would know where we should put our trust And how we should bring forth good works to make our calling, our election, and our justification sure. Have mercy upon us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. When was Abraham justified? Justification should be one of the most important doctrines of the Bible. It should be one of our most important questions. How can a man be just with God? How can God accept any sinner? 
When was Abraham justified? If you were to read Genesis 15 and Romans chapter 3, 4 and Galatians chapter 3, you'd think that Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 because it says he believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. So some sense of justification took place there. But if we come to Genesis chapter 22, there the Lord said, Now I know that you fear me, and this event will be used by James in James chapter 2 as the time of Abraham's justification. But there's more to it than that. Abraham was justified in the eternal phase of justification in the mind and purpose and covenant and decrees of God before the world began. Because he had chosen Abraham in Christ Jesus to be made accepted in the Beloved. 1, 3 through 6. That was before he ever created Adam because that's what the Bible tells us. Then Abraham was justified on the cross of Calvary. And until that cross appeared on Calvary's hill with the Son of God upon it, God had faith in His own covenant that Christ would die and justify Abraham. So that's the legal phase of justification. Now Abraham's interesting, isn't he? Because the practical phase of Abraham's justification occurred between the eternal phase and the legal phase. Ours comes after the legal phase. Because we're living 2,000 years after the cross. Abraham lived 1,000 years, 1,500 years in front of the cross. We can read from our Bibles that God chose men to justification, that Christ died on the cross and by His singular obedience justified them and made them righteous. What is happening in Genesis 15? In Genesis 15, God tells Abram, to his question, I sure would like a son. Where's my son? I give everything you've given me to this son of a servant. And God said, come outside. Now start counting. There weren't very many street lamps in those days. Start counting. Can you imagine no street lamps? I love a clear night, even with street lamps. It's still beautiful to look up. But he looked up and the Lord said, start counting. That's how numerous your seed is going to be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 4 tells us about that believing. It says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He sh- we probably would have staggered. He was dead reproductively and his wife was dead reproductively. Listen to the words. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That what he had promised, he was able also to perform. He considered not the deadness of his own body, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's Abram. And the Lord, seeing that great faith for a man who was dead reproductively, married to a woman who was dead reproductively, that he would believe his seed would be as numerous as the stars, counted it to him for righteousness, meaning that Abraham's faith was an evidence that he was a justified and righteous man. The Apostle Paul, when he comes to Rome, this is so important. This is one of the most important theological distinctions that we can make in this church. When the Apostle Paul 
comes to Romans 3, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and he's dealing with a particular heresy. A very specialized heresy. One that we don't encounter. That heresy was men who believed you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. When Paul is dealing with them, he goes back and pulls this event from Genesis 15, which God put there for this purpose, and teaches those Jews, Abraham, the father of your nation, was declared just and righteous by God before he was circumcised in chapter 17, 430 years before God gave the law to Moses. And he's the father of your nation and the father of the faithful. If you want to know the truth, forget Moses' law and look at that event in Abraham's life. God justified Abraham and declared him a just and righteous man by the virtue of the evidence of his faith to believe an impossible promise by God. That is an incredibly important distinction for you to understand why Paul often brings up Genesis 15, 6. He brings up Genesis 15, 6 to defeat and overthrow Jewish legalists who wanted to trust in Moses' law, which was 430 years too late, who wanted to trust in circumcision that was two chapters too late because God declared Abraham righteous in chapter 15. Now let's ask this question. Is that, when Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6, did that change his standing before God? Not at all. Not at all. Abraham was already a man of faith. Why do you think he left Ur of the Chaldeans in chapter 11? Why do you think he built an altar and worshipped God and was accepted in chapter 12? Why do you think he took his 318 trained servants and took on an army of four kings in chapter 14? Why do you think when he met Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, blessed Abraham? Why did all that happen? Abraham was already an elect child of God, justified in the purpose and plan of God. Genesis 15.6 was just one of the watershed events in his life that God the Holy Spirit put in the old, the pages of the Old Testament so that the Apostle Paul in the pages of the New Testament could correct Jewish legalists. Nothing changed in Genesis 15.6. This is important. All that happened in Genesis 15.6 is that Abraham believed God and that faith was such a good example and evidence of Abraham's just state and his righteous character that God counted it to him as an evidence of his righteousness and put those words on the pages of Holy Scripture. This event was no different than Phinehas. In Numbers chapter 25, Phinehas, fornication. Balaam couldn't curse Israel and have it work, so Balaam taught the Moabites to send their women into the camps of the Israelites to teach them to fornicate. He said, since God won't let me curse the nation, I know how we can overthrow Israel. We'll send your daughters in there and overthrow them by whoredom. Well, there's a bunch of fornicating going on, and the Lord's starting to kill men. 23,000 are dead. And they're having a prayer meeting, and they're doing some weeping and some hollering. And there's a tent with an Israelite man and a Moabitish woman in it. And Phinehas says, it's, we've done enough in. Let me go do something about it. So he grabs a javelin, and he goes into that tent, and he impales those two fornicators. And God stopped his plague. 
that was wiping out Israelites, and he and he blessed he blessed Phinehas. It's a wonderful blessing that he gave him in Numbers chapter 25. And when we come to Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31, it says, God counted to him for righteousness. That event was evidence of Phinehas's righteousness. Did Phinehas's status with God change in Numbers 25? No. It's just that God singled out that event in his life and wrote by the Holy Spirit for all of us to know that that act, that good work, was proof of his righteousness. God counted to him for righteousness because it was a proof or evidence that Phinehas was a righteous man. I'll never, not until you get out there and start reading the systematic theologies of men will you understand the importance of what I'm telling you. Nothing changed about Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, except that we know God singled that event out and said this is a proof of that man's righteousness. Paul used that to defeat his particular theological enemies, Jewish legalists. James did not use James 15. Did I say James 15? James did not use Genesis 15. He used Genesis 22. Because he wanted the one that involved more action in it. Because he didn't want just mere belief, mere belief. He wanted belief plus works. So he used Abraham offering his son Isaac on an altar. Now come to James chapter 2. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. And let us see justification as clearly as you are willing to show it to us. James chapter 2. Verse 14. What doth it profit? My brethren, though a man say he has faith, have not works, can faith save him? Can faith save him? There's two rhetorical questions here. The first rhetorical question is, what does it profit, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Our answer is, it profits him nothing. The second rhetorical question is, can faith save him? The answer, the answer to a rhetorical question is obvious to the reader. What's the answer to that question? No, no, faith cannot save him. Now, what salvation is under consideration in James chapter 2? In James chapter 2 is the Apostle James writing, the, writing these 12 tribes scattered abroad to give them a theological foundation for their evangelistic and missionary program in the world. No, he's writing these carnal Christians to tell them that unless they have a whole lot more than their profession of faith, it's not evidence of eternal life. This word save here is not save being used in being born again. James isn't writing to born again people, telling them they need to get born again. James is writing to born again people, telling them to be saved in a different way. Just like we learned in verse 21 of chapter 1. Just like we're going to learn in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. There's phases of salvation taught in the Bible, and if you don't get them rightly divided, you're going to end up in confusion. This salvation here is the evidence that you have eternal life. This salvation here is the evidence that you're a justified man accepted with God and going to heaven when you die to be glorified. If you don't have more than a profession of faith, you have no evidence for that. He's going to prove that. Listen, this salvation here cannot be the obtaining of eternal life, because James is going to make this salvation dependent on your works. This salvation here has to be 
the evidence that we can lay hold of in our own lives to assure ourselves that we are truly the called and elect of God. We had a brother read to us that we can make our calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That's not how we earn our way to heaven. It's how we assure our hearts that we're God's elect. Did you notice what that string of things was? There were eight things there that were to add to what's the first thing that God gives us? Faith. Faith. Make sure that you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so forth through eight things. And if you do these things, ye shall never fall. That's not earning your way to heaven. That's knowing you're going to heaven. And Peter said, as long as I'm alive in this tabernacle, meaning my body, I'm going to continue to remind you of these things so that you can always know with assurance that you're going to heaven based on doing those eight things. Faith was given by God in verse 1. In verse 5, we start adding to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience and so forth. And so here in James chapter 2 and verse 14, James starts into these hearers of his, these readers of his, he is going to correct their easy believism. If there's ever a chapter that applies to our general, well, 2 Timothy 3 does too, the perilous times of the last days. This is easy believism he's trying to correct. You believe that there's one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But faith without works is dead, O vain man. This is the easy believism of our generation. James comes much closer to the theological heresies and practices of our day than Paul does. We don't, when was the last time you ran into a Jewish, you used to live next to one, a Jewish legalist that wanted to keep the Old Testament holidays and everything. And we run into him once in a while, a Seventh day Adventist or some Herbert W. Armstrong's wide, worldwide church of God. But for the most part, James is closer to home. You know, how many of us are sitting in here trusting that we have eternal life? And isn't that the biggest issue of life? Whether we've been saved from the consequences of sin or not, death, hell, and condemnation? This is the biggest issue we could ever ask and answer. And the answer is right here. How can you know? By more than faith. Because you've got to add things to your faith. This salvation here, he is not writing to anyone else that those that he was writing to were to be thinking about. He was writing to them that in their carnal Christianity, they would know they did not have a real claim on eternal life until they added their faith. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Is faith alone enough of an evidence that you have eternal life? No. The answer is no. This cannot be the obtaining of eternal life. This cannot be being born again because all these people were already born again. He is exhorting them to the life of godliness and the proof of election, which is brought forth in works. Do you know what people say to us about our doctrine of election? Well, if you believe in election, then I can live any way I want to. Because if I'm elect, I'm going to heaven. And if I ain't elect, I'm going to hell and I can't do anything about it. (laughs) You know what God says about those people in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4? Their damnation is just. We have the strongest motive to bring forth good works. Because do you know what we believe about election? The only way you can know that you're elect is to bring forth good works. Look at their doctrine. All you have to do is go forward, say two little sentences about being a sinner and needing Jesus to save you. Then you can go live any way you want to. 
And they have no answer for that because that's how most of them live. That's how most people who make a profession of faith end up living. But what, look at us. Look at, we give God all the glory for salvation. He elects us by His own, according to His own sovereign will, for the praise of His own glorious grace. And the only way we can know that we're elect is to bring forth good works. We have the highest motivation to good works while giving God the greatest glory for saving us. They say, how can you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? The Bible does it gloriously. God gets all the glory for saving us against our own will. But the only way we can know that we're saved is to live a life of holiness until the end. Praise the Lord for the truth. The Arminians say, I just don't... It just is too confusing to me, so I'm gonna, I'm just gonna side on man's responsibility. Forget God's sovereignty. It's all up to man. Then some fatalist comes along and says, I'm gonna side on God's sovereignty and give him the glory and end up being fatalist. But we want to preach the gospel right down the middle, which says God is sovereign, but man is responsible in the sense that once God saves us, the only way we can know that we're saved is to live a life of holiness and righteousness. And so we come to James 2.14 and James is telling these carnal Christians that he's already said they're born again. He's telling them the only claim you have on eternal life requires more than faith only. Faith is not a good enough evidence to be the evidence of your salvation. He gives an illustration in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? What's the answer to that rhetorical question? Nothing. It doesn't profit a thing. If someone is naked and destitute of daily food, and you say to them, Brother, be ye warmed and filled, be at peace, have a nice day but you don't give them anything, are you filling them? Are you warming them? Or are those words utterly worthless? James' point is, those that say, I believe in God, I've accepted Jesus, whatever that means. You know the Bible doesn't tell you to accept Jesus. You know the important issue is that God has accepted you in Jesus. Do you know that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6? All that's going to matter when we get to heaven is that God has accepted us in Jesus. That's going to be the issue. When we stand before a holy God... It's not whether we've accepted Jesus or not. It's whether He's going to accept us because of what Jesus did for us. And He chose us in Christ to make us accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Wonderful. The, the words mean nothing. We had read this. Lord! Lord! Have I not prophesied in Thy name? And in Thy name done many wonderful works? And in thy name cast out devils. Jesus will say, I never knew you. The words of the Lord have no weight at all in the evidence of eternal life. Do you know what it said in that very same passage? Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, in that day. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That is the evidence of eternal life. And I want to tell you that that little story in the end of Matthew chapter 7, about building your house upon a rock or building it upon sand, that is not for the storms of life. Sorry, context won't allow that. That is for meeting God in the great day of judgment. 
the only thing that's going to put you in good stead is to have lived a righteous life. That's the only way that you can claim when that storm arrives. Otherwise, your house is going to fall flat. Didn't you love what it said about our Savior? When he preached, he was different from all the seminary graduates. All the seminary graduates came out and said, Well, I think, well, I believe, well, I know this dear brother said such and such. And Jesus just came out and thundered and rolled for three chapters. And it said the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority. I hate all the pictures of Jesus. I hate all the stories about Jesus because they paint this little Hindu guru with long hair that takes a bath once a month and doesn't know anything. He sits around cross-legged looking at the ground. He's so pitiful. He's a beggar. I I never read about that one in the Bible. Have you read about that one in the Bible? The one I read about in the Bible is the people were astonished at his doctrine because by his teaching he was so authoritative in comparison to all the weak-kneed, milk-toast, effeminate preaching that was going down in those days by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was different by his authority because he was sent from God and he had a message and the message has eternal reverberations. The answer to verse 16's question mark is nothing. If we were to say something like that to a person that's naked and starving, be warmed and filled but give them no clothes or food, it doesn't profit a thing. And to say something about your devotion to God without backing it up with works is just as empty. Because verse 17 says, even so. Now that's a double adverb combination there that's saying in the very same way I have just illustrated. With my illustration from verses 15 and 16, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. It doesn't mean or profit or prove anything. You know, people are so confused about faith. Faith is an evidence of eternal life, not a condition for it. God didn't see faith when He elected us. Christ didn't see faith when He died for us. And we're born again by the Holy Spirit of God before we have faith. Faith is an evidence that we're born again of the Spirit of God. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not, future phase of salvation at the great day of judgment, shall not come into condemnation, but is past. Perfect tense verb, is past. Passive voice. God has already passed you from death unto life, and it's proven by hearing and believing the word of Jesus Christ. Because without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the regenerating change of our spirit, we would never hear nor would we believe the things of God. Jesus said to the, to the unbelieving Jews that were facing him in John chapter 8, ye, believe, ye hear them not because ye are not of God. That's all the difference in the world. And we have to keep that straight as we go through James. James isn't writing to anybody telling them how to get saved in being born again. He's writing to those that are already born again. Remember, they were born again chapter 1 and 18. They were already born again. He's telling those that are born again on what they ought to do to know that they have eternal life. Can faith save them? Is faith the evidence of salvation? Is faith worth trusting coming up to the great day of judgment? No, no, no. It's dead being alone. Verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Yea, men. There's two men with faith, but one of them has works. The one says, let me show you my faith by my works. Because real faith is going to do some works. Real faith is an active thing. 
It goes out and obeys God. It goes out and obeys God at great cost. It goes out and obeys God and believes God in great things. But there, then there's a man that has faith without works. And the man with works says, hey, why don't, you, why don't you show me your faith? How does the man without works ever show you any faith? He can't. He ain't got nothing. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Because all works that count with God have to flow from faith because without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is in the rewarder. Verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. You, you Jews that I'm writing to, you believe that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You're doing well so far. That's a good thing to believe that there is one God. But you're no better than a devil. Do you remember how well the devils believed on Jesus Christ? When Jesus met the Gadarene, what did he come and do? He ran and fell down and worshipped Him and said, We know who Thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art Thou come to torment us before our time? The devils know. Remember in Acts chapter 19 when seven gypsies tried to cast devils out of a man? Those seven gypsies said, We adjure Thee by Jesus whom Paul preaches. The devil said, Jesus we know and Paul we know. But who are you? And strip those seven naked and chase them out of the house. Don't you love the Word of God? Can't you get a smile on your face reading the Bible from time to time? We know Jesus and we know Paul, but who in the world are you imposters? Strip one man, strip seven naked and chase them. They know the Lord Jesus Christ. They know there's only one God. They're not polytheistic idiots like the Greeks and the Romans. You say you're being too harsh on the Greeks and the Romans. Go read about their gods. They had a God for everything, just like the Catholics have a saint for everything. You know, believing that there is one God, one Creator God, and He's not in a battle with any other gods. I'm thankful for Isaiah 40 through 50, ten chapters that say that God went and looked to see if there were any others, but He found none. Right. He wanted to find and see if there were any other gods, but there weren't. So His own arm brought salvation. Thou believest that there is one God? Well, that's a good start. The devils also believe. They tremble with that knowledge. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 20 helps me understand the little phrase, Thou doest well. I have usually given that to you as irony. A sarcastic statement saying the opposite. Irony is when you say something and you mean the opposite. You know, when you tell your child when, they go, when they're going skiing, go break a leg. You, you don't want them to break a leg. You're telling them to be safe and not to break a leg. And here, when it says, thou doest well, it's not, it's not irony or sarcasm because of the but that starts off the next verse. The but that starts off the next verse is saying, though I have somewhat commended you in verse 19, I want to tell you now that that combination doesn't, that commendation doesn't go very far because that faith in one God without works is dead being alone. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You are trusting so much in your faith, but the devils have faith. The devils have enough faith that they tremble at the name of Jesus Christ. They believe that there is one God. 
They have set themselves in rebellion against Him, but they still fear the torment that is coming. Then in verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Though you start well in believing that there is one God, and He has one Son named Jesus Christ, you start well, but you don't end well, because without works that faith is dead. And so we come to Abraham in verse 21. Was not Abraham... Now these are rhetorical questions that every Jew scattered abroad would know the answer to. They would know the Bible. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Question mark. That's a rhetorical question. Was not Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? The answer here is yes. Abraham was justified by works. James is going back to a different event in Abraham's life from chapter 22, very different from Paul, because Paul's purpose and Paul's need was different. So he went back to chapter 15 to get a verse about Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness so that he could defeat Jewish legalists who were trusting in Moses' law works. James, writing to those not trusting in Moses' law works, but in bare belief, wouldn't dare go to chapter 15 because all chapter 15 has is bare belief. So he goes to chapter 22 to get an action flowing out of Abraham's faith, and that action was the willingness to offer his own son as a burnt sacrifice. Thank you, Lord! Martin Luther looked at this chapter and said, I can't understand it. Rip it out of the Bible. James is an epistle of straw. I don't even believe it's inspired. It doesn't belong in the canon of Holy Scripture. And it's a shame that so many Baptists are told to revere Martin Luther like he's a cousin of the Apostle Paul. That baby-sprinkling heretic that kept the doctrine of the Mass from the Roman Catholic Church and just changed it a little bit. Do you know what Martin Luther said? Because we can still taste, smell, digest, and defecate the cracker, we know that a cracker is still there. See, the Catholics haven't even figured that out. They say that it's transubstantiation. The substance of the cracker has been transformed from a cracker to God. Martin Luther said, consubstantiation. There's still, con means with, there's still some of the substance of the cracker. You're still eating God, but you're also eating a cracker. That is no hero for Baptists. That is no hero for our children. And he sicked the peasants of Germany on Baptists like our fathers in the faith. He had no respect for Baptists. You can read about the Bohemian Christians that came out of the forests of Bohemia when they saw the Reformation taking place in Europe, begging Martin Luther for mercy, that they could come out and live like normal people instead of living in the forests of Bohemia. And they were chased from him. Because he was no closer to us, hardly, than a Catholic. Right. We, should, we can understand this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And I've explained to you why James is going to Genesis 22 and why Paul went to Genesis 15. And before both of them, Abraham was already a righteous man. Those were just two watershed events in his life that the Holy Spirit mentioned so that men of the New Testament would have events to appeal to to overthrow false doctrine. You know, when I get to Hebrews 11, I'm reading about the faith of Abraham. What's the first event? By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place, 
which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went, not knowing whither he went. What chapter did that take place in? 11 and 12. The just shall live by faith. Abraham was already living by faith in 11, 12, 13, 14. He was already a just man. Only the Lord can show you the preciousness of being able to understand Genesis 15, 22, Romans 3, Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. The rhetorical question of verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Yes, he was, because the angel of the Lord cried out from heaven, Now I know that you fear me. Verse 22, Seest? Oh, can you imagine James' excitement at trying to convert these the twelve tribes scattered abroad? Brethren, this is in your own scriptures. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. The faith that you know about in Genesis 15, he's going to get to, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit. He's going, to, he's going to quote Genesis 15, but he's going to say Genesis 22 is more important because Genesis 22 shows that what happened in Genesis 15 was real. The belief was real. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. What we all know about Abraham, James is saying, we know he's the father of the faithful. But look at his works. His works made his faith perfect by showing that it was a real faith, a complete faith, a living faith, because it resulted in action, in obedience to God. Verse 23, here it is. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Genesis 15:6. God said of Abraham, he is a righteous man because of his faith in me. But that was really fulfilled. You could really know that by when you got to chapter 22, when he was willing to offer his only begotten son as a burnt sacrifice to God. Then you could know that he really was a faithful man. James is taking Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 and putting them together and saying you need both. Because his opponent were carnal Christians trusting a mere decision, faith only, for salvation. His opponent was very different than what Paul was attacking in Romans 3, 4, and Galatians. So he, he, he shows that chapter 22 is more important than 15 because 15 without 22, other than the Lord's testimony, didn't carry much weight because it was faith without works. But notice he's saying, Seest, seest thou how his works in chapter 22 brings life, fulfillment, completion, perfection to what is said about him in chapter 15 that he believed God. We know he believed God by the actions he took in his life. And brethren, if you want to know that you have eternal life, you need some actions backing up faith. That's his point all the way through this particular lesson of Genesis, of James chapter 2. Let's read verse 23 again. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith. And this is Genesis 15.6. This right here is Genesis 15.6. The scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed. God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. The real evidence of righteousness in Abraham's life was what he did in chapter 22, and he was called the friend of God. The real evidence that showed he was a friend of God was Abraham obeying and doing the things that pleased God, not merely believing the promise God had made about his descendant. Verse 24, ye see then, here's my conclusion, brethren. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. 
And see, that verse right there tells us the whole context has not been on obtaining eternal life, but on obtaining evidence of eternal life. Because it says, ye see then, how that by works a man is justified. If we take justification in its legal sense, then we're justified by our works before God. And that is not the case. If we take justification in a practical sense right here as the evidence of our standing before God, then we understand the verse. But without the five phases of salvation, we're going to end up in confusion. And we're either going to want to say Paul wasn't inspired or James wasn't inspired because they're contradicting each other. But they're not. In fact, there's beautiful congruity between both places. Paul just uses Genesis 15 for his purpose. James uses Genesis 22 as his point of emphasis because 15 is what these people were relying on and they needed some works and Abraham had those works and if they wanted to be a friend of God like Abraham, they better have the works. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. You carnal believers that I'm writing, you believe that there's one God? The devils believe that. That's a dead faith. Add some works to it, like you're the father of your nation, the friend of God did. Abraham added works to his faith. You need to add some works to your faith. Then he jumps to another example. This shocks people. This shocks people. He's about to tell you how a prostitute proved that she was a just woman in the sight of God. A harlot. Shocking. Glorious. I love the Bible. How much, do you know all, you know all there is to know about Rahab? How was she related to David? Great grandmother. How was she related to Jesus Christ? Great, great, great grandmother. She's in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab the harlot. The whole city of Jericho fell flat. Except one little chunk. And out of a window of that chunk, there was a scarlet thread. Because Rahab the harlot believed in the God of Israel, the one God of Israel, by the grace of God, who put her into the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever feel you're too sinful for the Lord? Think again. Think again. Think again. Rahab the harlot, a mother of Jesus, a great-grandmother of David, little scarlet thread whipping out of her window, and the whole city fell down flat and hers stood up. Why? What did she do that was so noble? She lied to the rulers of her city. She was justified by lying. Now who wants to jump on that horse and ride it to heaven? She was. Look what it says about her. Verse 25. Likewise also. That means just like I've described Abraham being justified by faith and works, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. When we read the Bible, what do we call the messengers? What's Spies. We call them spies. If you were spies going into a city like those men did, you would go to a place where people didn't ask questions or write down names. You would go visit a harlot. That should make sense to you. She took those two spies. She took them to the roof of her house. She hid them under some stuff that she had up there. And when the rulers, when the men of her city came and said, where are those men that came into you? We believe they're spies from Israel. Oh, you just missed them. They just took off and they went that away. <laughs> and there goes the rulers of the city 
She lets the men down, but before she lets them go, she takes them by their throats and says, remember my father's house. Remember my father's house. God is going to give you our city. The whole land of Canaan is trembling because of you, because the true God is with you. Remember me in my father's house and the kindness I've shown to these spies. She sends the men of the city that way. She sends the two spies that way. They came back and reported to Joshua. She is in the hall of faith. Rahab is in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Rahab. Here, by works, Rahab. Not only did she believe, which was Paul's purpose in Hebrews 11. His purpose also is what they did by their belief. But James here wants to lay hold of her works. She she put her life at risk for her belief in Jehovah of Israel. She risked her life. If she'd have been caught that she was misleading the magistrates of her city, she'd have died for it. She risked her life to save the lives of two of God's spies. And listen, any child in here, are you wondering about what I just said? Any parent in here that's wondering about what I just said? In order to lie, to save the life, you can lie to save the lives of God's people. That's the case there. This wasn't no frivolous lie when your parents say, who left the lights on in the garage? And you say, I don't know. That is a frivolous lie, and for that you should be whipped. We're talking about an event that's very serious and life is at stake, and it was the lives of two of God's messengers, and she spared them by her mercy toward them. And you know what? That is pulled up in James chapter 2 as an evidence of justification. What kind of justification? Please. Please. Did you, did you hear what I said about who wants to ride that horse to heaven? Right. If that justification in James 2.25 is our literal standing before God, then Rahab is in heaven because of lying to the, to the rulers of her city. But that isn't the case. The justification we're considering is the practical phase of justification in which we lay hold of it ourselves and assure ourselves that we are God's justified elect and we're going to stand before him accepted in heaven. How do we know that? By faith and works. And Rahab did it her way. Abraham did it his way. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Question mark? Yes, that's how Rahab did it. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. My dearly beloved brethren, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, if you think your belief in the God of Israel and even in His Son Jesus Christ is enough, you're wrong. The evidence of eternal life is not in that bare belief. Your evidence of eternal life is in works. Because like a body without the spirit is dead, so your faith without works is dead. Have you ever gone up to a casket and looked at a body without the Spirit? So fast. As soon as that Spirit leaves, you know that all you have there in that bed, you know it, shaped, damp clay. The body is 70% water. As soon as that Spirit leaves, you know that all that is in that bed is shaped, damp clay what Peter called his tabernacle that we had read to us from 2 Peter chapter 1. The house that we live in. Our soul and spirit inhabit the house. When the spirit leaves, the house returns to the clay 
from which it was made, the dust of the earth. And immediately you can tell that all that it, you touch it, it's clamped, it's shaped, damp clay. That body without the spirit, faith without works, is just as dead. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You can't get that shaped, damp clay to get up, to smile, to hear, to believe, to do anything. And so is faith without works. And so we come to the end of James chapter 2. We understand how we are justified by God, choosing us in the Beloved before the world began. We understand how we're justified by Jesus Christ, dying and paying the legal price for our sins on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. We understand that we are justified by laying hold of that for ourselves and to assure ourselves by taking our faith that God gives us and adding to it virtue, knowledge, and other good works, two of which are described here as Abraham's and Rahab's. This is the evidence of eternal life. Do you want to know that you're God's elect and justified? Do you want to know that, if, that, these, that you'll never fall? Do you want to know that you will never fall and that you will have an abundant entrance given to you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? You had it read to you today from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. You can know that you will never fall. You can know that you will have an abundant entrance into heaven by adding to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. And there's temperance in there that I, I left out. Those eight things. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Right. Praise the God of heaven. We give Him all the glory for saving us by His grace, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the way we lay hold of that for the assurance of our souls is by believing on His Son, Jesus Christ, and adding to that faith the good works described here in James 2, 2 Peter 1. Paul could write the Thessalonian church and say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4, through 4, Brethren, I know your election because your faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. The same things Peter had in his list. Love, hope, patience, faith, works. Same things James had in James 2. I know you're elect of God because of your work of faith. Labor of love, patience of hope. Brethren, let's lay hold of eternal life. Let's lay hold of eternal life and make it sure to ourselves so that we'll never fall. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and obey His commandments. That is the evidence of eternal life. It is the proof of justification. May Jesus Christ be praised.